Hello and welcome to Step Into Light. I'm Laura Barton. And I'm Michelle Jones. This week we are covering the book of Revelation, chapters 1 through 11. The title in our Come Follow Me manual is Glory and Power Be Unto the Lamb Forever, referencing a scripture that I think is probably one of my favorites in this section. Michelle, you looked like you were about to say no, something. No, I was just going to say, is it in part because it ends with amen in the forever middle of the chapter? Forever and ever, amen. Forever yes. and ever, amen. And it yes. does it often. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we are going to first talk about who, what, where. This is written by John. It's a revelation received by John while he was on the island of Patmos. This is John the Beloved, John that wrote the Gospels, the books of John that we covered last week. He's on the island of Patmos. In um, he's been isolated because he was put there and persecuted. And so he is writing to his fellow saints because we are at a time now where the Christians are feeling lots of persecution. Some of them are losing their lives. Many of the leaders have lost their lives. And so this was written and sent to the people, the early Christians, to help them feel... Um, a sense of comfort about the future. That is such an interesting <laughs> way to look about it cause because I was almost just feeling like, I mean, here he's on this island, he's in prison, he receives this revelation and he's told, share it with these seven churches, right? And I almost feel like this is the Lord saying, I love you, so I'm going to share with you the really important things that you need to know in the first couple chapters, like specific things to each church. And then from there on a grander scale, I mean, I guess here's the comforting part. God wins. Right. And that is comforting, but there's a lot of like, I don't know, not very comforting things that are in there because there's a lot of turmoil that's going to be allowed to happen before the final victory. Right. And so even though that is what the historians say you have to take it in context and we will get to the fifth book and see the context that we're talking about. But when people are literally being killed for believing in Christ, knowing that Christ will triumph in the end is how you give them comfort. So we're talking about an intense period. So I think when we talk about the book of Revelation, it's important to think about the context of, of who the original audience may have been. But because it is a revelation, duality of interpretation is always important. And so I'd also like to make sure that we're always addressing that this is given to all covenant-keeping followers of Christ, and to, to also see it in that context. And so we have a revelatory book here that is 22 chapters. So some people may find that a little bit intimidating, I take comfort in the fact that um, the word apocalyptic is actually Greek for revelation. It means to reveal, to unveil, and it's become a genre that usually is referring to prophetic words about the future. And so we actually have revelations in our scriptures that we're familiar with, We are very familiar with the revelation of the tree of life and Lehi and Nephi's experience with that. I think one of the differences is that in the Book of Mormon, we get, what, four chapters of revelation, and this is 22 chapters. And so there's some reasons why people may um, find themselves 
needing to look for support when they're reading the book of Revelation, but I very much enjoyed reading it. I thought it referred a lot to things that we've addressed in the past, in a in our past few podcasts. And I personally enjoy symbolic literature. And so for me this this was actually a lot of fun to read. And I and I felt like so this is my first time, I'll just be transparent, reading word for word all of these chapters and I thought it was very helpful reading them after having read so many books of the New Testament like I felt like my ability to comprehend and to um, really gain a lot from it was increased because I already had so much context for time and place and the culture and what was happening and the format of sending these letters that I did really enjoy it. I did um, read alongside with, like I used um, a couple different commentaries, just curiosity what they would say, but then I was pleasantly surprised to find that I had some of my own thoughts as I was studying and reading, and I found it more accessible than I was worried it would be. Well, I I spent a lot of time um, talking to people about interpreting art, and so, for instance, I'll do tours at the Phoenix Art Museum. And so one of the things I'll say is, you know, when you're looking at a, a visual work that may be a little intimidating, the first thing you want to do is connect with it. The average person looks at a piece of artwork maybe six or seven seconds. Oh, really? And then they're surprised they didn't get a lot out of it. They just look at it and go, oh, yeah, I don't understand that. And then they'll walk away. So in that same kind of perspective this has a visual element to it right and so I kind of thought about it that way when I look at a piece of artwork um, the first thing I try to do is connect on it connect with it of something that I may um, be experiencing but one of the other things I talk to people about is there's kind of a language there of uh, visually there's line color shape texture and if they actually just observe those things they automatically feel more connected to it it is what it is. So if we actually invest and spend time with this work, you're going to understand more. But sometimes it's nice to have historical context or maybe the artist's opinion themselves of what's going on. And it's always nice when you may even have some educated people that give you a key, which with a sophisticated work like this, Joseph Smith in section 77 has given us an entire chapter that tells us about many of the symbols here. Yes. And so do, so reading this with um, DNC section 77 makes a huge difference. And I actually found the, new, the Institute's New Testament uh, uh, manual to be very helpful with this. Um, but it does say in Revelation chapter 1, Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud, and blessed are those who listen to the words of this prophecy, and who obey what is written in it, for the time is near. And so again, I kind of turn back to, you know what, if you sit with this, and you just try to connect with it a little bit, we will be blessed for having the desire to read, for having the desire to understand the, the word of God. And, and if we actually apply it, he says, those who obey what is written, uh, they'll be blessed. And so for all of us that have gotten this far and come follow me and have read Revelation this week and are pondering it this week, congratulations. According to verse three, we're going to be blessed. And so I do think this is a great actual book to read during the during the Christmas season. And so. I will say that I found that to be true this week. I was, there have been, there's been a question that I've been like wrestling with for probably 
well, probably a lot longer than a month, but I'll say actively wrestling with for a month. And as I was studying in Revelation this week, a new understanding, and it's not directly connected to the end of times or anything that we're talking about here in the book of Revelation, but I felt like because I was trying to seek after and understand what the Lord was trying to teach us in this, my mind was able to comprehend other mysteries that had been um, something that I really had to desire to understand more. And so I guess I would add my witness to John's here that blessed is he that readeth and they that hear and understand the words of prophecy. Oh, I love that testimony. Okay, so we start off getting a revelation of Jesus Christ from to his servant John. And it says in verse 5 that we are going to find, uh, this is from Jesus Christ, who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood, who made us a kingdom, priests and priestesses to his God and Father. So from the very beginning, we know that this actual revelation is addressing anyone of the kingdom of God that he has the ability to endow and help become priests and priestesses. So even though the first few chapters, actually he's addressing the people of the church that are near the island of Patmos. So in modern day Turkey, on that coastline, there were seven seven branches of the church that he's actually addressing at the beginning. We know that this is for all covenant keep, keeping people. So he says in chapter one that while on this island, he received a vision. And this vision, he was told by an angel to write to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So, um, this is all a lot. So, this is very descriptive. So, we're going to have to just kind of read through some of this. But in verse 12, right at the very beginning, he sees a vision of Jesus Christ. Now, John, in his lifetime, spent his days with the Savior. He also saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration transfigured so he's actually seen him in his glory and and been visited by him but it's interesting to hear his description here. i was gonna say that actually makes it even more interesting right? that he would take the time to write a description because this wasn't a one-time experience for him but i absolutely love it it reminded me of um some of the modern day um recordings that we have that joseph smith has shared with his um, description of seeing the Savior in his glory. And it says after he describes it that John fell at his feet though dead. So so this description describes Christ in all his power and glory and even that was just very overwhelming to John. So he's described as, first of all, he sees Christ in the middle of seven gold lampstands, which are candlesticks, candlesticks, mm -hmm. um, which actually, if we're going to refer to temple imagery, which I'd like to do, that could refer to the menorah, which we've talked about in the holy room with the six, the seven candlesticks, um, which we know is kind of the, the tree of life or the spirit of God. And um, it said he had a robe that extended to his feet. And there was a gold sash, and his head and hair were like wool, as white as snow, which we know Christ has the power to make our sins that were scarlet as white as snow. And his eyes were like a fiery flame, which flames give us light. And we talked about the source of light last time. And this isn't just light coming from his eyes. It's a source of light. Mm -hmm. um, and his feet were polished metal. They were refined brass. 
Um, he held seven stars in his right hand, and in his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And so this, we can just go on. We could take every single sentence and talk about the symbolism. Right, we could so. totally break it down. But I really loved, especially after he sees all of this and recognizes um, the Lord Jesus Christ here, he says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet dead. And that the Savior laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of death and hell. And I thought, I love that. I love that in this state, here's the Savior. I mean, we've just had a witness with all this glory that he has. And he takes this moment to comfort John and to reassure him of what is happening here. And then we transition from this into some of the things that he's teaching, um, kind of giving this counsel to these other church members. And I thought, you know, there's some really interesting things that we can take here because there are, I think, things that are common to all of us that some of these members of the church were struggling with at this time. And one of the things I thought was interesting because he kind of takes... It says in the King James translation, um, the angels of the church, but we know through the Joseph Smith translation that that's the servants. So right. these are like the leaders, most likely here of these churches that he's writing to. And one of the things that I underline each time before the Savior gives counsel to them, he starts out by saying, I know thy works. And in the first case, and thy labor, or I know thy works and where thou dwellest, or I know thy works and charity and service and faith. Right. So there's a there's a structure to each of these. So these aren't seven separate letters. Right. We have seen that over and over in the New Testament, right? We have an introduction of who you are, and then the message, and then it and and so this could have been seven separate letters. It's not. These are more like edicts if you read it all together, to the church as a whole. Because let's talk about the number seven. So there's tons of symbolism in here, but there's a couple of things that are pretty important. And the number seven is pervasive. So we know that um, completion and perfection is something we've talked about a lot. And the number seven is complete. That is the seven days of the week. And this has been used over and over as a symbol in the book of Revelation. So the number seven and the number 12 mm -hmm. are just used over and over again. And he's, he talked about the seven candlesticks and the um, seven stars. stars. And so I just, so before we go into it, I just want to point out that we've talked about light and we're told to put our candle out there, right? right. But a lamp stand to be a light a on a candlestick mm -hmm. is a holder of those lights, right? And so these churches are the ability to be the body of Christ to actually hold up his light. That it's not actually the source of light. I really like that. That mm -hmm. it, that it's the members who are reflecting the Savior's light. Exactly. That that, that bring the light, the the church itself is the structure or the holder of the light. The other thing that I liked about this structure is that before the Savior really gives them counsel or in some cases correction, he starts it and it, it kind of goes back to that intimacy that we've talked about mm -hmm. before, mm -hmm. that I know you. Right. I have seen you. I know you. I know what's happening. This isn't some generic counsel. And I really appreciated that. I felt like that was significant. Right. And so each, each church gets a separate address. And each address, he starts off, 
even though these are just a few verses from each other, addressing them with a new power of his glory, which I just loved. So the very first one, he said, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hands and walks amidst the seven gold stands lampstands. And so we already know those seven stars may represent the servants and those lampstands may represent, you know, the churches. But Christ holds perfect light in his hand. He had seven stars and seven means perfect. He holds the complete light in his hands. I I just like the visual of how he's like, and here's another title of me. Um, Michelle for on her Christmas tree ordered ornaments and each ornament has a title of the savior mm-hmm. so one says the messiah and one says the bread of life the bread of life so mm-hmm. so you could have a 12 foot tall tree like completely covered with all the ways to address the savior and goals right and like, my goals, goals next year. okay so so um but with each each church he also kind of um rebukes them a little bit with and shows them how they can be closer to the Savior and and how they have to be in these last days, right? He says with Ephesus, you've endured patiently. Remember, this is where the Temple of Diana is, that they've endured against much adversity. And I'm sure there are people that are giving them a very hard time, um, but that you, they have to repent and they have to stay close to the Savior. They can't be like the Nicolaitans, which teach that there's just no consequences to your action. But he says, if you do, you can eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So isn't it interesting right away in in verse in chapter 2, we're already looking at um, revelatory language from other revelations we're familiar yes. with, right? And I love how, in addition to this correction, where he's kind of saying, you know, you're forgetting the Lord and all this. You're being obedient, but you're really forgetting that the love of God is really that at at the beginning. And but then he goes on to give comfort. I I really appreciate that he mixes this mm-hmm. reassurance, this comfort in with the correction. I really get this sense that the Savior is giving this instruction to these people because he really wants them to be safe. He wants to give them every opportunity to know exactly how they can be safe through all of this turmoil. He says in verse 10, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. And then in verse 11, and I love this because this phrase comes again and again in these verses, he that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. So in each in each section, he addresses them as Christ, a powerful, glorified Savior. He, uh, uh, let's see, he will tell them that they're doing something very good. He'll rebuke them a little bit, and he'll say, but come unto me. And be faithful, and that our faith will make us conquerors. So at the end of each one, he talks about being a conqueror, which keeps going on. This is a big theme, being conquerors. Not conquerors as those that um, are conquerors as worldly conquering, but faithful. Faithful in Christ will make you a conqueror in the last day. So that's the formula I keep seeing him doing. Yes, this like ultimate complete conquering, this old like overcoming and to me that word overcome feels so empowering and filled with so much hope for me and so that's a word that stood out to me and then another word that he uses in this pattern is we're just like identifying this pattern that comes again and again is 
he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. Absolutely. And I think there's so much that we can gain from that, that the Savior is teaching these people, but ultimately it is up to each individual to choose what they want to hear and what they want to um, choose to act on or to tie their faith to, to tie their um, path to. And if you choose your agency in faith, he gives them a promise at the each of, end of each of everyone. So now in Pergamum, they are promised hidden manna and a white stone, a stone with a new name, which will be written on him. And so a lot of this is temple imagery, hidden manna. Um, if you stop and think about manna, it really was cool. The Israelites every day would wake up and they would have the amount they needed for that day. So the bread of life. So manna was a type of bread. Mm-hmm. They couldn't store it. It would spoil in a 24-hour period. Nobody could have more than they needed. You couldn't like use it for food storage, right? So every day you woke up and you were dependent on the Lord for your bread. And he said hidden manna, which in the Ark of the Covenant, sometimes they would put hidden manna in the Ark of the Covenant. And so... This Ark of the Covenant obviously represented the throne of God, and and he's promising them the celestial kingdom with that revelatory stone and a new name. And so all of this is, again, telling you the things that we've talked about with temple and imagery and the promises that are given to those that conquer through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Also to, to the um, thi- Thyatira, they are promised the morning star, the one who has an ear to hear, right? Mm-hmm. Hear. Let that person hear what the Spirit says to these people. They the, the morning star, the morning star is the Savior, the right. second Amazing. comforter. I love so that. So if you stay close that's to like the, the Savior, yeah. yeah, that's a pretty good promise, right? And so these are the promises of those that stay faithful, but these people are being persecuted hard. These are people that are in the midst of, um, let's see, ne- Sardis is... Okay, so before you go on to Sardis, I just want to say, so chapter 2, verse 25, we're just finishing up chapter 2 and getting ready to head in chapter 3. But I really liked how he said in 25, that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. So he really is giving them a mix of like some counsel in the moment mixed with this hope and comfort of the ultimate victory, which is yet to come. Right. Hold tightly to and what I just, you know to be true. That's like such a visual that I can just picture in my mind and get hold behind. Hold to the iron rod. Wrap hold, yourself around it, right? Hold, hold fast until I come. Like a little spider monkey. Just hold right on tight. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. And so, so for Sardis, he said, you cannot fall asleep. Hold fast to that. If you don't, he says to them, if in verse three of chapter three, if you will not wake up, I will come as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come against you. He's saying, don't sleep, you know, don't take a break right now. It's coming. But he says that there are people in Sardis that have not stained their clothes and they will walk with me dressed in white because they are worthy. They will be conquerors clothed in white clothing um, and their names will be in the book of life. Again, being clothed with white, um, the the visuals we have here, when there is battle, there is war that will happen towards the la- last chapters, and we've talked about putting on the armor of God. And in the book of Revelations, the armor of God is white robes that clothe you. Oh, I love that. Because to me, that visual, it's interesting. I'm going to pull us down and we can go back up because there's some good stuff 
in that center section of chapter 3 too. But in chapter 3, verse 18, he kind of counsels them what to focus their riches and their goods on. And one of the things he says is... Um, a white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. And what I wrote next to it was to clothe yourself in the atonement, that if we are clean and pure with the Savior, then we are prepared for that day. That is our armor. You I know what? love that. I wrote that too. So you oh don't even gosh. need DNC 77 for this stuff, right? Because really like we're like in sync or something. <laughs> I love it. Because in, in Lede- let's see, Ladicia, that... These are people that were prosperous. Um, they were kind of proud. And and he says straight out to them that they think they are rich and they prof- profers, prospered and say, I do not have any need. But you do not realize that you are miserable, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked in your pride. I counsel you to buy from me gold that was refined by fire so that you may be rich. And buy from me white clothing so that you may be clothed. And, and the shame of your nakedness will not be made obvious. Again, we're like referencing things that they know that are powers that come from, you know, the temple. And, and, and by me, salve mm-hmm. to anoint your eyes, be anointed. Yes. And to me, part of what that was saying, the shame of your nakedness to me is being unprepared. Like anytime I have one of those dreams where I like can't find clothes to wear to go to an event or something, or you show up and you're like not dressed. I'm sure many of us have had those kind of dreams. To me, it's I wasn't prepared. And I imagine that this is some of that same feeling that the Savior is trying to help us so that we don't have that feeling of that I've shown up in my nakedness when really the Savior has this white clothing available to us. We can be clothed in his atonement and be protected and feel prepared for what is happening. And that's interesting because I just keep thinking of temple experiences and how those still go hand in hand with that. So, in fact, let's go right back to Philadelphia that we skipped over. Yes, thank you. Such a cute little group of people. Um, They had a little strength they were trying so hard. They had, didn't have much to work with. Philadelphia was a place which the god Dionysus ruled. Sorry, no Greek history. And I really appreciate that you keep <laughs> tackling the complicated names. But Thank Bacchus you. and Dionysus, he's the god of revelry and wine. And these people are holding tight to the Savior amidst this stuff. That's why I'm so impressed, right? And he says, those who hold tight in verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make the person a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not exit out. For you, it probably says to go no more out, right? Because I love that line. Yes, he Does says. Does it say to go no more out? He yeah. says, him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God. And, and, and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from God. So we're talking about... Zion here as well. Yes. So, and this is super for, see, all of this foreshadows what we're going to talk about where he said that these people will have a new name, that they will be pillars in the temple. Um, That name, the high priest had a name, had God's name on his forehead when it, when he would put on his garb. And, and so we'll probably talk about that later, but from what I recall, it said holiness to the Lord on the high priest's head in gold, I think, which we know is at the top of the temple. So, And I think it's interesting. I'm going to pull us forward into the next section of our yes, reading. Yes, keep moving us forward. Which is into these revelations, because I think it'll be interesting as we see that again, this concept of 
the Lord's name or his covenants yes. being sealed upon our heads. So we're going to continue to discuss that as we move along. So now we're in chapter four of Revelation. So we, so we just left um, the literal connection with John's writing this revelation down and sending it to someone, right? Because right? he addressed it to all these people. But here, let me just say this one thing because I get so excited at this part. And, and please read yours because I read this and I said, oh, I've heard this before. So... Chapter 4, this is the opening of a vision, right? After these things, I looked and beheld, a door was open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking like a trumpet said, because he referred to the angel at the beginning, right. like a sound of a trumpet, come up here and I will show you what must happen after these things. So I read this in Greek, but in my mind I hear, um, which I heard speaking like a trumpet say, look, that, and that he went up. That, that he went up, come up here, he went up, and the an angel said, look. And I'm like, wait, that's how Nephi's vision right. starts. I think Moses starts like that. This is how visions start. So I'm thinking you might say different. I was like, this no, is the Greek for, did it say come up here? Yeah. Oh, well, I was just thinking it should, it's like, look. It's actually very close. And I, I really love that the angel with Nephi's vision keeps yes. saying, look. And then you're supposed to look and right. see the vision. <laughs> and I love these patterns where we see that the Lord communicates to his people and to his prophets and to those who speak by the voice of prophecy. You know, John was the one that was given the privilege and really the significant responsibility to write all of these things down. But it has been the privilege of many of those with the spirit of prophecy to see some of these things that John has seen. So as right. we, did I state the end of the of Nephi's vision and in, in first Nephi? So at the end of Nephi's vision, it states that Nephi will then be shown the end of days and the same things John the Revelator Correct. sees, but he will not be writing them down. Because it is John's time. assignment to write this to the world. Correct. And so then we come into this part where the first thing that John sees is he basically sees the throne of God. And we see a lot of symbolism for these people that are um, really recognizing and worshiping God's glory and all of the amazing things. And one of the things that really stood out to me in verse 6, before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. Right. And one of the things that, and I just thought that was interesting because here we are on this earth that someday will be refined and purified to become this great... Um, Yerman Thummim? Yep. Yerm and Thummim, this great perfected home. Sanctified for the Savior. Revelatory like, place. This will be his home. And there's something about that that really resonates with me because this is our home now and what the potential where, where where it will go. So I really appreciated that as it guides us into then seeing some of these different um visuals that we're getting right and so we see the throne of god we see creatures that are explained as having eyes all over wings all over eyes representing and in fact joseph smith in section 77 tells us eyes represent knowledge and wings represent the ability to move and act and so Power. these are glorified beings that's what we know we these are people that have joy in their creation and they have been exalted in the joy of their creation they are magnified in that and then we so we see these creatures i was gonna say and i love how this happens i feel like in just about every chapter of this section of the reading we're seeing moments where people that are glorified that are clothed in the white raiment they praise and worship right. God and his plan and what has brought us here. So clearly they, through their perspective, 
are able to see how all of this is connected and how it works out. And they think it's really fantastic. So I'm going to draw some comfort and hope in that. Right. Glorified beings, according to this revelation, sit around and say, holy, 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 worthy is the lamb. And I think that's wonderful that if your eye is single to God's glory, you can feel that. And so, um, and forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Over and over again. So um, this is also after we see the creatures, we see 24 elders, which it's funny. Numbers are not that complicated, even though you're like, wait, I thought seven and 12 were complicated. Nope. 24 is just twice as as cool as 12. It's like 12. So we talked about seven being the perfect number. 12 is like the perfected number of the organization of God, whether that's 12 apostles or it's. 12 tribes. Just the 12 yeah. tribes of Israel, or when I say it's the perfected organization, it could just be the power of God on earth and how he's organized it. So, but, I, but yes, if you stop and think about, you know, 12 is even the age when you start passing the sacrament. 12 is how God organizes his power. And so to have 24 elders is just double 12. <laughs> Double it's not awesome. a new number. It's just twice as cool. That's how that's there, how the numbers work in, back in the day. Okay, so in chapter 5, we're seeing that one of the things that John sees is he sees this throne um, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne is a book that is written, and it's sealed up with these seven seals. And chapter 2, you know, is saying... Who is worthy to to open this or book? verse two. Mm-hmm. Verse two, thank you. Chapter five, verse two. Um, and verses three and four. No man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book or to look upon it. And we wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read the book. But in verse five, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. So what are we talking about here, Laura, as we're talking about this book and these seals? Okay, I wish I had more time. Again, this is the first time we read it, right? But if I could, I would go back and I would look at every single time he says, I heard versus I saw. Oh, okay. Because here he hears, there's nobody that can open the scroll. And one of the elders says, I hear, he said he heard that there's, there's a lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David that can open this. And then he sees in the midst of the throne mm-hmm. by God, he a lamb mm-hmm. that was slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. Which I think it's interesting because in the Joseph Smith translation, it changes the number seven to 12. Right. And I kind of like, both? Yeah. Right? Like, let's do I it think, both, right? I think both are interesting. I think Christ 7 and 12 works for are him, probably right? relevant, yes. Yes. And so, of course, 12 can be the servants and the apostles that... So, so if you have a lamb with seven eyes, 12 eyes, 12 horns, you're talking about the ability to do what you need to do. Maybe those apostles are doing it for you. You're obvious, He's obviously omniscient. and um, But he's a slain lamb. Slain lamb. We know he's a sacrificial lamb, and he's. We hear he is a lion, but we see that he is a lamb, in the midst of the throne of God in all its glory. Not this ferocious, powerful thing, but a beautiful, meek lamb who's been slain because he is doing what the Lord has asked him to do. And I love so verse five kind of sets the stage, and everybody again praising and worshiping that. Worthy is the lamb here 
to open up these seals. And then beginning in chapter six is where we start seeing. Okay, but you what skipped each of my favorite I skipped, scriptures. Well, so. I'm assuming because there's a lot of like singing kind of <laughs> scriptures in here that I totally thought of you. Well, okay. So here's the thing. I really love. Well, yes, but I really love verse nine that, that they point out that he is worthy to receive the scroll and open its seals because that was he was sacrificed then. because of the atonement. Not because he's a powerful lion. But because he was willing to be slain. Because he was the lamb. Because he was willing to be that meek. That to me is just It's beautiful. It's the it's the the washing in the blood. It's just something that doesn't make sense to us on a mortal level, but it's so beautiful on a celestial level. And then he and then everybody said that worthy is the lamb who was killed to receive power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. Power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. Seven attributes, perfect attributes. And the one that's seated upon the throne of the Lamb be praise, honor, glory, power forever and ever. These are what celestial beings say all the time. So anyway, I loved it. Okay. So then, yes, then we actually get to open the seals. Yes. So chapter six. Okay. So... So we're starting in chapter six, and this, I believe, is where we start to get the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Is right. this correct? This is where yes. this, this which like, our famous pop culture wording, is so exciting, and which is interesting because I just didn't even find that the most interesting thing about these chapters. But I think it's just very visual for people, right? And and, and there's actually a vision. I think it. Zedekiah, Zachariah, somebody has a vision with these, and they're just people that come onto the earth to check out what's going on or to bring something forward. Mm -hmm. But really, because Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith with revealing this did everyone a great favor because I think it can get very confusing without yes. this. So essentially to break it down, each one of these seals represents roughly a thousand year period. And so or at least we do know these periods are chronological too, which that is, is I think very That important. is really helpful to note yeah. too. And so, you know, we're in this period of time where as best as I can understand, we're in the sixth seal. Right. It seems like there's an Adam Noah kind of period, Noah Abraham, Abraham David, David Christ kind of thing. Right. And now in the fifth seal is where John is. And so the Correct. fifth seal is even opened in the chapter six. And can I go there, verse 9? Yes, that's, okay. a, and that's so actually he, the part where I thought it started getting the yes, most interesting. So when he opened the fifth seal, he sees under the altar, under a sacrificial altar, the souls of those who were murdered because of the word of God and because of the testimony they had given. These are the people he's writing to, right? Their martyrdom has meaning. And I love how in verse 10, he says that those who have been slain for the word of God, that they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on earth? Right. And then, and so I think that that's interesting because I feel like there's this tension. There's this tension that is being created as we are progressing through these seals of the justice of God for his people and the mercy of allowing as many as desire to be able to have the opportunity to have their clothing washed in the blood of the lamb. And so there's this tension that right. is being created there with that. And, right, and that and goes I on think, and on throughout and I, these chapters. And, yep. and we're still in that tension now. And But then he says, and white robes were given unto every one of them, those who died because of their testimony, that they could, and I really like this, rest yet for a little season. Right. <laughs> I'm like, oh, or good. you know what though? To rest in the fullness of 
Jesus Christ. I think these are people that have have been given the white robe to rest with the Savior. But the question of of who will stand and how long is what is actually addressed right yes. after this. Yes. So so this is where they're resting in the in Christ, but then the sixth seal is open. The sixth seal, the end of the sixth seal is is our time and Correct. Joseph Smith's time, right? And so the very beginning of the opening of the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. And we can take it figuratively, we can take it literally, but I will tell you figuratively, to me, all these earthquakes and everything, that is very much a reflection of instability. And looking, where do we look for truth? Our societies are complicated. And and so what happens with the sixth seal is... In verse 13, and I found it interesting because we had talked so much about light and source and being tethered to something. Verse 13 says, The stars of heaven fell to the earth like a fig tree, lets its late summer figs fall when shaken by a great wind. And our times, people, when we talk about stars, we have, I don't know, rock stars, movie stars. (laughs) Our stars... Maybe they're financial stars. Maybe they're government stars. People tether themselves. Instagram stars. Yes. These are not, these are not the sources of light. These are the, this is what gives this instability. And I think it's interesting how at each, like there, there have been, you know, a thousand years, a long time. Like we've been here during this sixth seal. And I think, you know, you can think of like the, the dark ages like there's just many different mm-hmm. ways that darkness has come and although we are enlightened in many ways in our day when it comes to maybe medical advances or scientific discoveries some of these different things in other ways we still as a great people are living in darkness because we don't recognize where the true light is coming from as an entire culture and and the word star is used throughout this revelation um, we have falling stars we have stars that we just talked about that are like figs falling to the ground. And then we have the fallen star, right? Satan is um, a fallen star. And you talked about how much you loved that Christ will not let us fall. Yes. Was it last week? Yes. And in fact, he said, and I feel like that kind of goes together in verse 17. So the last mm-hmm. verse in chapter six, for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? Right. Which is like kind of like standing to me is like not falling we're standing strong and the instant thing that came and i can't even remember where it came from but i'm sure you'll know um and who shall be able to stand he that hath clean hands and a pure heart is what came to me there um okay so who is able to stand kind of is a theme that just kind of pulls everything together. We've talked about standing in righteousness. We've talked we talk about standing in holy places. Standing we talk about the armor, armor mm-hmm. of rights that you stand with Christ. You stand in truth. And who will be able to stand? That is what chapter seven is. It is the sealing of the hundred and forty-four thousand people that are sealed servants to God. And so chapter seven talks about I love this, Laura. I just have to tell you well, then maybe you should start how talking. much I love it because I feel like this right here shows the mercy of God and it shows his just love beyond what we can compare to try to keep us safe and to protect us, to give us this opportunity. Because here he has in verse one these four angels that are standing on the four corners of the earth and they're holding the four winds basically 
preventing destruction from coming to the earth, to the sea, to all of these things. And an angel descends in verse two and cries with a loud voice saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees until we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. And I just think it's that tension that I talked about before. I think here is this opportunity where the Lord is orchestrating this so that the cleansing of the earth and the time where this justice will come to the earth and it can be purified is literally being held. It's being held at bay until all those who want to be sealed under covenant to God have been able to do so. Right. I love that tension that you talked about, that he is willing to give us every opportunity to turn to him and that through our agency, we become sealed that Elias comes, who's this angel that descends from the east, and he gives us the opportunity by gathering the tribes of Israel. But we have to choose to, to make ourselves, make Jesus Christ our head. When we talk, it says that they will seal the servants of our God upon their foreheads. And um, we haven't gotten to, I think it's in Revelation where we get that they're sealed in their heads and their palms. I don't know. We haven't, that would have to be at the end. I, have, I haven't read past chapter 11. <laughs> I haven't either. But, but again, I go back to the high priest had holiness to the Lord like a temple, right? We know that we are temples and we can seal our agency, the dominion we have over our bodies by serving the Lord and turning to the Lord. And he says that the tribes of Israel are the ones that see, see the lamb and, and turn towards him. He goes through the 12 tribes that every nation, right? So everything you were talking about, I loved to, like I read verse nine and kind of told myself not to cry because you see a large crowd that no one could number from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And they stood in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, and they wore white robes, and they had palm branches in their hands, praising God. You know, a lot of people that are members of the church are from the tribe that actually has the responsibility to do the missionary work, right? But we are to take it to all people. It's nice that we have that role. I'm I'm from the tribe that can spread missionary work, but there are twelve tribes, and all of them are going to have the opportunity to turn to Christ. Yes, and I love in verse nine it says a great multitude which no man could number. So this isn't just a few people that are being saved right. here. And and then in verse thirteen, which is a which is interesting because there's so many numbers that, that, that they just stated there wasn't even number because he could have 144,000 already is well, 12 times 12 plus a thousand, which again, really not a big difference between 12, except you're going, but it's bigger, but so it's, it's more, cooler, but it's that's, more. that's how these numbers work. But I think the key is here. We're not literally just talking only 12,000 from each right. tribe, that this is really a great multitude that cannot right. be numbered. And in verse 13, speaking of this multitude, one of those 24 elders, what are these which are arrayed in white robes? And in verse 14, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So these are those who have overcome. So if you want to know who is able to stand, it is those that have washed their robes and whitened them in the blood of the Lamb, which is yes. so interesting to think of if you put that juxtaposition, if you just, put something in the washing machine with blood and it's white, 
Yeah, that doesn't work. But And I think that kind of teaches us that the way that our mortal mind mm-hmm. comprehends things is just not the, the way that the things of God of it, work. Right. And closing out this chapter in verse 17, I love how he says, mm-hmm. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Right. It's beautiful. It's It's beautiful. beautiful. It's stunning. Okay. So on to chapter 8 when we're going to talk now about the seventh seal. The seventh seal. And the seventh seal was opened and it was so dramatic that there was silence in the heaven for about half an hour. This is dramatic. (laughs) I know. It really is dramatic because it's like, what does that mean? And you can speculate about what that means. Like, is that a literal 30 minutes? But I'm just... Do you remember in... I mean, of course you remember, but what this brings to mind as we're talking is when the Savior comes comes in the Book of Mormon after he's been crucified and there's all this commotion and everything has been in disarray for all this time and then there is silence. There's almost a sense of, you know, that seventh day you rest. There's almost the sense like, okay, just give me a second. Because when you start looking at all this, everything's spiritual before physical and the earth is even tied into this. I mean, the whole thing is so monumental that it's like everybody just needs a second to breathe because it's about to get it, it's, it's about, about to get, to get real. even more exciting than it was before. Okay, so the righteous come to the temple, they bring their prayers and it's almost um, a, a, an actual reference to reference to the prayers of the temple. Again, those 144,000 people the, the 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 saints hear these prayers, the angels hear these prayers and then the the the, the trumpet sounds which Anytime the trumpet sounds now, it's going to be judgment, redemption. It begins the cleansing of the earth and the wicked. And then here's one of the things that I thought was interesting. As we go through, paying attention as we've talked about the symbolism of these numbers. um, And I have a thought about it, but I'm sure you have um, a thought about it too. I noticed this pattern, which is a third part. And this starts through, you know, there's seven different angels that are representing um, sort of a next layer of cleansing and purification of the earth. And at each one, different things are happening. So with the first angel, we have a third part of the trees and all the grass burnt up. The second part, we have a third part of the creatures of the sea and a third part of the ships and a third part of the sea is made into blood. And then on and on, we have the the rivers and the fountains of waters that are contaminated. A third so part is, of the sun, a third yeah. part of the moon. And then in chapter 9, which we'll get to later, a third part of the men. Okay, so here's when I think people take things so literally. I'm like, wow, that's hard. But everything is, to, it, it says in this, everything was spiritual before temporal. Yes. And we know that in the first estate, a third of yes. the host of heavens didn't make it. So I feel now so connected because that's what I thought. So of now too. we're just talking about the earth being cleansed, and and the earth represents this. We talked about it in with you were talking about like nuclear destruction. Was it Peter at the end of Peter? And you're like, this will really happen to the earth. The earth goes, we're going through those same processes, right? There's a cleansing period. So I think as we go on to read Revelation, it's important to read it in that context. When you see this this transformation, we experience these things in our lives. It may not look like scorpions. We may not have real scorpions, but we may have a barrage of things from the internet that, that 
that attack us um, with spiritual torture that we have in our real life that we have to overcome. So, so first, the earth has a third of it. And then it says in verse 13, Woe, woe, woe to those living on the earth because of the remaining voices of the trumpets of the three angels who are about to blow. And we get these three you get a third, but you also get three. So there's mm-hmm. also three woes that we go through. Correct. So this first woe looks very much like the Exodus plagues. Um, and what happened with the Exodus plagues is he's like, I'm going to keep humbling you. You won't turn your heart. You will not humble yourself. Let me humble you. So these plagues come. And what what they say is this happens here. The, the plagues come and they still aren't humbled. And then that angel, though, says... Um, it's about to get worse. And then Satan comes. Which is like, to me, I'm seeing this as a shift in that tension we were talking about. Mm. We've, we've had this tension of balance where we're holding space for mercy for people. Anyone who wants to come, let, let him come. And yet we have that this earth is, in some ways, I feel like almost being tormented by the wickedness that is upon it. And the earth needs to be cleansed and the righteous need to be comforted. Right. And so I think we're going to see that some more. Um, But it says that all this persecution happens. It's figurative. It's probably a lot of it's about spiritual torture. Maybe it's not. Um, And in chapter nine, I really feel like so much of that was sort of John trying to describe war that he had never seen the kinds of machinery and the types of torture that we've created Mm -hmm. for each other is really i mean it's really cool imagery if you think about our tanks and our weapons that we have and how he's describing them it's pretty cool but you know pornography on the internet john didn't have back in the day so i wonder how he describes that so yes i think this is very very literal destruction because this gets into armageddon but I, I, I want us to always think about the sport, spiritual torture that can happen just because we have access to so much worldly things mm-hmm. that back in the day people went to church because there was nothing else to do. We have plenty of things to do now. So he says the first woe passed and that there were two more coming, but that this humbling that God gave them didn't really affect people in verse 20 the remaining people who were not killed in these plagues did not repent from the works of their hands they didn't change they still held on to their material possessions and and sexual sins which is kind of astonishing if you think about it well, okay so now we're heading but again this is how god gives them every opportunity it's their agency they because, all have agency because he wants them to be safe right i really get that sense as i'm reading he longs for them to be safe he, he really is like please let me tell you what is coming please ha- be safe i have to say i love our ambition of doing the first 11 chapters of revelation when we've never read them before in an hour so and we're doing pretty good <laughs> okay but let's so ten. Chapter 10 is like, at first it felt like this little interlude, like, no wonder this is hard for people. Then there's just this random revelation to John, but John is told that he is given a little scroll. He's told to take it and eat it, which is really his assignment as this transfigured person that he will be um, uh, bringing, his work has to do with bringing, gathering um, the 12 tribes of Israel. Like, I believe that and I guess I need to spend more time, but I believe he's the Elias in chapter 7, so I think that makes it make more sense. Oh, by the way, 
I just told you all this. Would you like to know what part you have in it? You're the one that needs to help gather these Israelites, yes, and this is how you do it. Because we have in chapter 10, chapter 11, the, the very last okay. verse, verse 11, thou must prophesy again before many people and nations and tongues right. and kings. And, and so, so and so, I love that idea that not only is he laying out for John, these are the end of days, but here is the part that you play, which takes us in. To chapter 11, which chapter 11, chapter, we right, it. which chapter 11 seems to bridge what we've talked about with what is coming. So, yes. so first, so now we've transitioned. John is not being talked to, John is now talking in the first person as part of the vis- vision. He says, then a measuring rod like a staff was given to me. Right. So John's now becoming a participant. John's actually gone through a few stages with this. So, um, and it's and it's saying rise and measure the temple of God and the altar. The participants. Okay. So okay. I'm going to pause you because I think what you just said is really significant for us. Ooh. Because don't we go through that as well? We mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. we start out as we study the gospel and we come to understand these things where we're seeing it like, oh, isn't this this really great thing that's happening over and there? And I love the idea of it. Or it like, makes what's going to happen? And then we have this moment, our chapter tens, where we find out what our part to play is. And from that moment forward, we see things with us being a participant in it and how we play our part in what is happening. I love it. <sighs> that, was, that was just brilliant. Okay. So um, he talks about the temple. The temple is where we will find our safety in these last days. The temple is where the 144,000 will find safety. He talks about things that will happen in Jerusalem. If it's the new Jerusalem, if it's Zion, that there will be two prophets um, he talks about them as the two olive trees and the two lamps standing before the Lord of the earth and that they will, um, they will have an experience similar to what the Savior experienced. They will be resurrected and that the tenth of the city will be killed after that, like and, a tithe. And the interesting, I mean, there's a lot of similarities here because here we are back in Jerusalem, these people are being killed for their testimonies. Um, People are going to rejoice that they have been killed. They're just going to leave them there in the streets for these days. After the three and a half days, um, the spirit of life from God entered into them. So we're in verse 11. And they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them, which saw them. Verse 12, they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and verse 13, the same hour, there was a great earthquake. So I thought, okay, this is very, there's a lot of similarities in many different things that we're seeing, but especially here with our Savior. And then in verse 15, and the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Okay, before we go there, I just want to say, so 7,000 people died and the remainder were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. And I love that you talked about he gives them every opportunity because we already talked about Satan being unleashed. But this time, the second woe, the first woe, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't really care. care. The second woe passed and, and there were, there were, there were people that were changed. Mm-hmm. Their hearts were changed. And so he really is giving them every opportunity even in the midst of the seventh seal, right. they're still getting opportunities. Right, yes. and I love that. And you know what? The first woe was 
God humbling them and nobody changed. But this one is the sacrifice, through the sacrifice. These people, these prophets, whoever they are, represented Christ and were willing to sacrifice again. And it's because Christ is the lamb. It's because of that love. It's because of the sacrifice that people change. Because they were willing to sacrifice their own lives so that these people could see the work of God being fulfilled. Right. And so Mm -hmm. we look at all this pestilence and we know that people become humbled, right? Sometimes they're compelled to be humbled. But there's nothing greater than sacrifice and the love of Christ that will change people, which is the ultimate message. And then because of that, a righteous kingdom with Christ at the head is what will rule forever and ever that this time has come now. The, the people in the fifth seal were asking, when, when will this come? The dead will be judged and Christ will now reign. Then, and so the last verse of this chapter of what we're going to cover today says, Then God's temple in heaven was open, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, voices, thunders, an earthquake, and great hailstorm. So, so the ark of the covenant was taken away with Solomon's temple. It's coming back, and it reminds me of the people that when Moses came down, with the opportunity for them to be priests and priestess. And they said, oh, I can't handle that. That lightning, the voices, the thunders and earthquake, that experience of seeing God's face was too scary for the Israelites. And they said, don't come down here with that. That's too scary. But these people, these people have chosen it. And I and it's like uh, it, it's it's actually a bit of a cliffhanger that that John is that like <laughs> that come follow me is leaving us on because I really wanted to keep reading and I hope that as people are able to study in here that we can give hope that Laura and I had never read through each of these chapters in its entirety like we had this time and it was really actually a very uplifting and satisfying experience so I really look forward to continuing the second half. I have to admit that I was a little um, disappointed to see, which is the wrong word, but like just because I'm interested to continue on studying and reading that we will actually be taking a little intermission before we finish Revelation. We do these impromptu, but maybe we should discuss our schedule over the next couple weeks because it would be Christmas that we would be doing it. So we may have to take a different approach. We may give them an early peek because 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 I don't think I can wait. This stops with bearing witness to the nations that the Ark of the Covenant came back. Right. And I don't know that I like that. And so basically there's two Come Follow Me lessons in the year and it'll be be a surprise which one you will get next. But one is the remainder of... Revelation, which closes out the New Testament, and the other one that we will be discussing is the Christmas Come Follow Me, which, of course, beautiful on so many levels will take us back to that focus of Christ at Christmas Okay, time. well, thank you for studying with me. Thank you, Laura. Love you.